You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Is anything cool anymore? I'm Anne Helen Peterson, and I write for Vox about culture. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I spent a lot of time when I was a teen growing up in a small town in Idaho in the 1990s thinking about what was cool. Could I buy it? Could I make it? Cool didn't feel like it was on the internet, but it also didn't seem like it was anywhere within driving distance of me. I'm an old enough millennial to have been deeply influenced by the Gen X understanding of cool as something both rare and unpopular. As soon as someone like me in Idaho had discovered something, it was definitely uncool. Today I'm talking with Minneapolis-based writer Safi Halanfara about her Vox essay, The Great American Cool. The essay builds on the years she spent writing and thinking about the commodification of cool, and particularly how it foments in white media, how it shifted with each generation, and maybe, arguably with Gen Z, how it disappeared altogether. Hi, Safi. Welcome to the show. Hi, Anne. How are you? Thank you for having me. So you start the essay with this really vivid description of your first cool job in media. Mm-hmm. So in as much detail as you're willing to go, will you tell me about <laughs> this job and what it was like and what the understanding of cool was there, both in terms of the staff and the content of this magazine? Yeah. So I interned at this amazing literary magazine called Paper Darts. I really actually loved the experience. Like, I just wish I conveyed how much I loved it as well in my piece because it wasn't like this terrible experience. It was actually amazing. And two-thirds of the founders of the magazine um, are actually good friends of mine and they're like mentors. But yeah, when I was there, I was 21. I'm from like an incredibly sheltered background. And it was my first time really kind of putting myself out there I used to describe myself as socially inept, and I really think I was socially inept at the time. So I wonder also like how much my experience was colored by just how I viewed myself as well, not just my peers there. But my job consisted of like marketing because it was a marketing internship. Mm -hmm. So I sent out a lot of PR emails. I tabled at book events and we had this like weekly meeting 
where we would just like talk about ideas for the magazine and like I would just observe everyone and I obsessively took meeting notes, not for the group, but for myself to later like put in my diary. (laughs) And my diary from that time is so unhinged. Like I literally have a diary entry where I'm like, is everyone judging me because I misspelled calendar in this email? And like, I literally ruminated on that for like two weeks. I mean, that's really real, especially when you're 21 and it's, you know, where you're kind of entering into the adult world and there are expectations that you somehow know how to navigate the world as an adult, but you're still very new at at a lot of these things. What were your coworkers like? Oh my God. So that's the thing too. I didn't view myself as an adult. Yeah. I was 21 and my life experiences were just so vastly different from all of them. And especially because I had that syndrome of like always being the youngest all the time. Like I skipped a grade in grade school and my birthday was in the summer. And like, so I just went into most social settings feeling like the youngest person. And now in retrospect, when I look back, I'm like, oh, they were actually around my age. Like they were all like 25. (laughs) (laughs) Which seems so much older though, when you're 21. Yeah. I was like these geezers, like, (laughs) like now I can see, like I was delusional. So this is in the Twin Cities in Minnesota in, was it like the late 2000s? When was it? 2011. Yeah. Like what things felt cool in that moment? Like, it's interesting to me that a literary magazine always feels like avant-garde in some way, even when it might not be. Mm-hmm. Um, what felt cool to me back then? Oh my God. Okay. So I love Dave Eggers. I loved Haruki Murakami. I loved Six Feet Under. I don't know. And, and like, I think that what I liked was definitely considered cool. Yeah. But when I was introduced to my coworkers, I kind of wanted to like what they liked, you know? Yeah. And they liked a lot of things I didn't necessarily gravitate toward um, naturally. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that oftentimes prompts this conversation of like, what what is taste? And I think like, I want to backtrack just a little bit before we get to this overall conversation about taste and, and try to define cool because some of it is really tautological, right? It's like, oh, these people are cool so that what they like must be cool But like, is what they like cool just because they like it? So like if someone asks you and you are kind of forced to do this in in your essay to define what cool is and how it's changed over time, how do you respond? I honestly think so much of cool hinges on insecurity Mm. and so much of like pretentiousness kind of hinges on just someone else's like perceived authority or power. And I think that at the time I viewed other people as being like the key holders of coolness. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't think that I could possess that. Honestly, I really struggle to define cool right now. I can only really tell you what I thought it was, you know? Right. Did it feel, especially at the time and when you were kind of coming to terms with what it was, did it feel kind of hegemonically white or like dominantly white or middle class? Like how did it fall within that spectrum? It definitely felt extremely white. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously there's black cool, which I kind of already just felt like I didn't 
access at all. Like I tried, believe me. I went to all black schools my whole life and, um, I just was, was not cool. <laughs> and I think a lot of it comes from like the taste that I developed at home. Cause my mom was like really into folk music and like, I was obsessed with Suzanne Vega yeah. and like Tori Amos and like Alanis Morissette at like a really young age. And that wasn't necessarily what the kids I went to school with like. But like the thing, so like Tori Amos, I was also obsessed with Tori Amos in high school and no one else was where I grew up. And I felt like I had a sense that maybe she was cool in other places, but I had no access. And part of this is because like internet fan boards and that sort of thing were still pretty much in their infancy. Like I had no access to a community of people who authenticated her as cool. So it was a taste that I knew was my own. Like I gravitated towards it for sonic reasons, right? Like I loved the piano on it and and the wordplay mm-hmm. and, and everything about it. But like those didn't seem cool to me. And I think this is where like cool and popular have a really interesting relationship that also shifts as you grow older. Mm -hmm. Because like you talk a little bit in your essay about how for Gen X, like cool had so much to do with scarcity and obscurity. Yeah. But then that's held in contrast with when you're in high school, cool things are things that are actually very popular, (laughs) right? Like they are things that people want or that the popular kids like. Well, I really, I feel like I really fetishized Gen X. Mm-hmm. Like I was obsessed with Reality Bites and Dave Eggers, obviously, and like a lot of Gen Xy music. I, I was really obsessed with like what Gen X taste was. You know what I mean? And it's kind of weird to see like the way Gen Z is now because I feel like they're really obsessed with each other. Mm. Yeah. I think Gen Z kids find all of us so embarrassing. Oh, I know. Especially millennials. Yeah. Especially us. I mean, they yeah. don't even register Gen X as human, but like, <laughs> it's their parents, right? We're still yeah. human to them, but like, super embarrassing. Yes, absolutely. And I like the first time that I really realized that was there's this great interview with Gen Zers in like UK Vice from a couple years ago where they're like, millennials are all obsessed with Harry Potter. And like, (laughs) I was obsessed with Harry Potter, by the way. I used to literally like camp out waiting for these new damn books. Oh my God. It's so embarrassing. Like Harry Potter and like talking about secure jobs. Like that is what millennials are obsessed with, (laughs) which is so true and also like deeply uncool, right? But like, this is where we get into this distinction between popular and cool because Harry Potter was incredibly popular and it was a way probably to like fit in with the status quo no matter where you were. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that Harry Potter was cool. (laughs) Right. I think that like I I said the word distinction in this past sentence, which is a good segue into talking a little bit about the theories of sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, which you mentioned in your article, like the most famous of his works is titled Distinction. And he talks a lot about how consumption is now the way that we distinguish ourselves, right? Especially as middle-class people. So I want to know about how you think about consumption and how it affects the development of the self and just like, you know, how we affix the things that we consume to our identity to try to make those identities meaningful. It's interesting. Um, I really only discovered his work through reading Carl Wilson's oh, yeah. book. And I, I love Carl. Can I just give him a shout out? Yeah. It's called Let's Talk About Love, A Journey to the End of Taste. Yeah, yeah. That book is so good. It's- <laughs> I just love his writing at Slate. He really piqued my interest in this topic and I have to give him props. And like, I think for me, I really feel like 
it all comes down to consumption. Like I literally just remember as a kid, I don't know if you ever had this experience, but I just remember coveting things so much. Like anything that was on television, any new junk, there were so many commercials for different junk. I wanted it all. Like every last thing. And I think that that feeling has really dulled over the years. Like I'm not that way anymore because I'm not a child. I'm not like operating on pure id, but like I definitely think that I still have this relationship to consumerism that is intertwined with, I guess, like performance or signaling things, you know? Mm-hmm. One really big example in my life is like, I'm really obsessed with vintage stuff. Right. And it like, I know it doesn't say anything about my character as a person, <laughs> but like, I feel like I need these things, you know? I mean, I think when I think about people who are obsessed with vintage stuff, I'm always like, oh, that's a better person. <laughs> Which is so false. I mean, I think that's how a lot of those people... Can I just say, you know, like a few months ago, someone had made a tweet that was just like, this style is avant basic. Do you remember that? (laughs) Yeah. And then I think someone checked them and was like, "Um, you're literally wearing like a top in your avi that's like very much that exact look. Is it not avant basic when you do it because it's like vintage comme des garçons, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I'm not immune to that either. Totally. But at the same time, I have a self-awareness around that where I really struggle to deride other people for those decisions, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, like, so the other day, I was telling someone about my bookshelf, something about how I had painted the back of it. And I took a picture. And in the picture, you know, there are some old-fashioned cameras and media studies implements. There's a stereoscope, which is like one of those viewers where you put a, a two photos in front of it and you and you look at it and it becomes 3D. And I felt the compulsion to say, that is my great-granddad's stereoscope. That's not like something <laughs> I bought from West Elm. And it's, I think that that's part of it, right? Yeah. That like somehow there are these elements that if they are like part of your own lineage or if they're vintage, like you found something that was cool, mm-hmm. like it accumulates a different form of capital, like social and cultural capital, than if you just went on to West Elm and put a bunch of things into your basket and pressed by. Absolutely. Um, you know what this reminds me of? I don't know if you were ever on MySpace. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember putting all your like most obscure musical taste in your little oh, thing they had for music? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And this also happened in early Facebook, which I joined when I was a grad student. And like, mm-hmm. you really, really worked hard on your profile. This was before the news thing became like the dominant means of engaging with Facebook. The profile used to be the way that you really engaged and cultivated your personality. Mm-hmm. And it became a sorting mechanism, right? Because it would hyperlink to other people who also put down whatever obscure thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, as like a a master's student, I remember thinking it was very sophisticated of me to say in my bio for Facebook that like one of my hobbies was calling Facebook a group of signifiers. (laughs) 
<laughs> but that's what it is, right? Like when you are listing these parts of yourself or when, you know, whether it's the way that you represent your life on Instagram, that too is a bunch of signifiers. But there were obviously pre-digital ways that we signified our cultural capital as well. Mm-hmm. Now the kids have Instagram. <laughs> I literally see really young people kind of pose with all their stuff. Mm-hmm. They'll like hold a book in like this really kind of forced way because <laughs> they want you to know like I'm reading this important book and then they're wearing like a bucket hat or something like a fuzzy bucket hat and like it's a whole thing and it's just more visual than the way we did it. Like I remember everything being just text. Right. Well, and that's interesting, right? Because it becomes more powerful to be depicted as someone who reads a book, right? Even if you're not actually reading it, but you own it and that signifies something about you instead of actually having the knowledge that you glean from the book. I think that like sums up Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Let's take a quick break. But when we're back, as Safi and I talk about the relationship between consumption and cool, I can't help but think about how some of the traditional fault lines between class and what's cool are being blurred. Has Gen Z scrambled all of this? That's after the break. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. So there's this book that I think you'd actually really like if you haven't already read it. It's called The Sum of Small Things. And it kind of builds on some stuff that Carl Wilson is talking about and that Bourdieu is talking about. It's by an academic named Elizabeth Currit Halkid. And she talks about how over the last like 30, 40, 50 years, like the clear lines of class consumption have kind of blurred. And part of that is that people can have a lot of education now and still be part of the precariat. Like they can still have very precarious forms of existing. And the classic example of this is like the PhD educated adjunct who is barely surviving paycheck to paycheck. 
But what happens with that is like people are always performing in ways that kind of scramble their class identity. So even if you are making very little money, you can still have read the right books, be listening to the right podcasts, like be able to perform a bourgeois personality in conversation at a cocktail party or something. And I, it all, this illegibility, for lack of a better word, it also reminds me of like the way that a lot of people, not all people, a lot of people are very persistent that like all Trump voters are poor white people. So I'm wondering about like how you think about class performance and consumption and cool. Like, do you think that it's really scrambled now? And is Gen Z part of this larger problem, for lack of a better word? I noticed with like Gen Z kids, it really feels like they want to align themselves with certain like bourgeoisie comforts and signal that they have refined taste or whatever. But then at the same time, I think that a lot of them really want to claim to victimhood mm. in a way. I mean, I'm not like anti-woke or anything, but it's like very apparent, I think, in just the way they talk about themselves and the way they like portray themselves. I don't think anyone actually wants to look rich, you know? Right. Do you think the Kardashians want to look rich? Um... <laughs> I've never really thought about whether they want to... I think they do want to come off rich. Yeah. I do think they want to look rich, but they do not want anyone to think that they were born rich. They're definitely self-made and their right. father, you know, just because their father wasn't like a billionaire or something, to them, like, that is like getting out the mud, you know? Yeah, and I think that this is like... <laughs> People never want their, like, path to status and to, like, whatever access they have to cool. Like, it's much more authentic if it isn't fueled by capital. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think I want to talk a lot about Gen Z. And, like, I also want to resist, like, an anthropological look at Gen Z. Like, I've seen some Gen Zers online being like, why are you guys so obsessed with us? And they're <laughs> and right. I, they're right. I mean, yeah. I am kind of obsessed. Like, I just think it's interesting. But you write as a generation that they are unfamiliar with the concept of obscurity. So can you tell me more about that? I just feel like they've had the entire world at their fingertips, Yeah, you know? And you could argue that we have had the entire world at our fingertips as well because we've been on the internet for so long and like mm -hmm. we were reading a lot of things online and learning different things. But it's really different with them. I kind of feel like They've sort of like downloaded all of the information we have. Yeah. And that's their starting point. Yep. It's actually really scary. Like 21-year-old me is an idiot compared to like any 21-year-old chronically online kid who's like reading the on a downward spiral meme page, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so can you tell us olds what on a downward spiral is? Okay. It's this fabulous meme page that's run by these kids. The memes are so broad. It's just the whole spectrum of humor, really, but also like the whole spectrum of taste. Yeah. I feel like just the average person who reads that meme page is just so clued into many, many different things. Like it's so all over the place. They're not memeing just one genre of music or anything. Uh, there's this like running joke about, I feel like Gen Z kids weirdly are obsessed with Kate Bush. 
Interesting. Yeah. And like, there's some other meme pages I follow that are very similar to On a Downward Spiral. It's like you have to be fluent in a lot of different languages. Yeah, you have to be you have to be able to keep up. That to me, though, is a slight intersection with how I think cool has functioned over time. Like to be involved in any sort of like cool music community in the 1980s or 90s, like there were different fluencies that you had to cultivate as well. But I think your point that is very good is that like it is so immediately accessible that there is not there is labor involved in it, but there is not as much like physical space and time that extends that labor. Does this make sense? Mm-hmm, that makes sense. Can you define what is cool defined by, broadly speaking, like very basic level for Gen X? How does that change for millennials? And then how does that work for Gen Z? I feel like a lot of Gen Z cool was derived from being really anti-boomer. Yeah. And being ironic, not trying to show that you're putting effort forward was part of that cool because I am a millennial. Like, I don't really recall, like, raging against Gen X or boomers, really. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I wasn't defining myself against another group, you know? Yes. yes, this is so real. I think that millennials were like, we're special. We don't need to compare ourselves in any way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really was that. And I did feel special. And then I think Gen Z... They've grown up with like so much of the discourse. They don't really value a lot of the things we found cool. Mm -hmm. You know, I interviewed Ilhan Omar's daughter. Yeah, yeah. She's really young. I think she literally is starting college in September or something. Ilhan Omar is, of course, the Democratic Congresswoman from Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And she was talking about what she finds cool. And honestly, in that moment, I felt not only uncool, but so old. Um, <laughs> What'd she like, say? I might be messing it up, but I feel like she really likes like Tierra Whack and like all these hip hop artists. And it sounded to me like they don't really care about the music you listen to necessarily. You know what I mean? Like, and like there isn't this prestige around the low energy indie rock that like I grew up on. Right. right. Low energy and indie rock. Like, like that. Th- no, really. Like that yeah. is, th- that is the thing that I was like shook. I was just like, wait, that's cool to you guys. But it's interesting because I think that there is this liberation and saying, oh, I'm old enough that I don't care about cool anymore. But then there's all of these other ways that we move over to try to show prestige or to show class. So even if we don't call it cool, it's still like an indelible part of our personalities, especially I think for anyone who feels any sort of compunction to perform their personality for the public. Mm -hmm. So you point out that Gen Z has like, (laughs) I love you call it a bizarre taste (laughs) do. I really like that. Uh, But it can still be marketed to. And so how does that, that idea that like, it still can be exploited, it's still part of this larger calculus of capitalism. How does that undercut some of these larger myths that I think millennials are particularly guilty of propagating about like Gen Z is going to save us all. I I just feel like there are so many forces conspiring against all of us, including Gen Z and like surveillance capitalism just makes it so that all of their data, there's just even more data for them to have extracted from them, you know? Yeah. And going back to the point that you made that like they've been online since they're five, like they have a digital portrait of their consumption Mm -hmm. that goes back so much longer 
than ours, which start much later in life. Oh, yeah. I think the biggest difference is like, I feel like the modes of marketing were more simplistic Mm -hmm. and that there were these like clear cut designations and demographics. And now I do feel like some of those have collapsed and like are a little bit more fluid as well. So in some ways, it's harder to create that profile about a Gen Z kid. But in other ways, when all of the data is just right there, it's not very hard. Yeah, like the identity is not as coherent in a way that we're used to. Like, it's not like white suburban mom. But at the same time, when you have... Wine mom. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like, you have like enough data points that it actually, it's meaningful, even if it doesn't fit an easy stereotype. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I really like about the piece is that you point out the ways in which like this pursuit of cool is just so exhausting. And even like just thinking about consumer identity within Gen Z, but outside of it, like it's just so exhausting. And I remember thinking this, looking at Gen X, just how exhausting it would be to like, as soon as something that you like, as soon as other people liked it, you had to find a new thing. (laughs) So can you talk more about what makes you feel exhausted observing it? Oh my God. I think the trend cycles are so short-lived Yeah, that that's exhausting in and of itself. I feel like they just like too many things at the same time. (laughs) And I thought I liked a lot of things when I was younger. Like I used to obsessively make sure I downloaded whatever like was new on the music blogs to my iPod every week. And I didn't stop doing that until probably around the time that I started interning at Paper Darts. Yeah. But I feel like there's even more to be obsessive and specific about with Gen Z kids because the whole process is streamlined. Like they don't have to go to a blog, download it on LimeWire. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> and then <laughs> they have everything on Apple Music and Spotify and it's like all at their fingertips. So there's just even more stuff, you know? I find that very exhausting. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, like my taste journey was very gradual. Like I discovered Simon and Garfunkel in seventh grade, which eventually led me to discover, like this feels like a long jump, but like Fiona Apple in 10th grade. But there is a line there, but it took three Mm -hmm. years. Yeah, I think it's way less gradual. I also kind of feel like a lot of the really smart Gen Z kids were on Tumblr when they were five. Yeah. (laughs) Which is like really different from someone who was on Tumblr. Like I got on Tumblr when I was 19. I mean, how can you compete with like someone who knows everything you know and then some, you know? Yeah. To me, sometimes it feels like when I got to college, so I hadn't like had a drop of alcohol, I'd never smoked a cigarette, anything when I got into college. And I was like, oh, I'm going to like try this for the first time. And then there was a whole set of kids who had like been doing hard (laughs) drugs in high school. (laughs) And like they were already weary, you know? Yeah. So does it mean though that like they back off? Like they try to separate themselves from the internet and embrace more like analog things and more self-discovery? Or does it mean that they kind of go deeper into the abyss? I mean, I can't speak for them, but I feel like it can go both ways. I've seen a lot of Gen Z kids who are like just super offline. And now the new thing with Gen Z is like nobody's on Instagram. Yep. That's a thing. Like they were already off of Facebook before everyone else. And now they're just not on Instagram. And that makes sense. But I've also seen like, I mean, not to bring up on a downward spiral again, but then there's that crowd that I think is like addicted (laughs) to consuming content, you know? Yeah. 
Right. And like everything is both available as a source of content, Mm -hmm. like their lives are available as a source of content, and then they also want to consume content. I mean, I I do think that the platform hopping is in of itself like an interesting way that the production of cool gets kind of cordoned off. Because if, let's say, millennials are still like all very obsessed with Instagram, the production of cool is not happening in the space where they are. Yeah. I like I think amongst my friends who all consider themselves old, right? They're like, "Oh, I'm too old for TikTok." And what does that say <laughs> about like, "Oh, I'm too old to think about cool" or like, "I'm a mom, like I can't deal with TikTok right now. Like I can't deal with thinking about trying to have an identity that includes consuming TikTok as part of it." TikTok is really weird. I one thing I I really envy about Gen Z is just how visual they are. Mm-hmm. I personally can't do it. Like obviously there are like a lot of millennials and Gen Xers who are like super into putting their image out there and like YouTubing and all of that and even like when some of them are on Vine, but like TikTok is its own thing. People are using it as like a diary. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember when I would write my feelings on Zanga, you know? Yeah. And Zanga was a blogging website and a sort of proto-social networking site that was popular back in the 2000s. And like some of them, not all of them, make really funny, interesting, like super articulate, like videos about things going on in their lives on TikTok. Trauma, even. Yeah. Well, and I think that something happens, though, too, when that is served up in a way for more broad public consumption. Because even on Zanga, like, people would read it in your community, but it wasn't necessarily there publicly. And I wonder how that changes the way that they feel about it, too, in the production of those sort of, like, confessionals. Yeah, it's really hard to silo off a TikTok account, you know? Like, you can't cultivate a super niche insular community on TikTok. Everyone has the same level of access to a public TikTok account. I mean, for me, like as soon as other people knew about this thing that I knew about, it didn't feel cool anymore. But I don't think that that's even a choice anymore. Like, I just think like nothing's that obscure with everything widely available on the internet, you know? Right. And you don't really even have to dig for the information So I don't really feel like obscurity really exists. What I do think exists is kids looking to niche communities online for a sense of belonging and that thing being their like obscure, cool thing. You know what I mean? You don't think there's still a sort of thrill that comes along with finding a band before they're super popular? Like when they've only got a few thousand followers or something like that? Oh, yeah. Like, but that happens on SoundCloud. Right. Like a song will be like buzzing a little bit among like a certain crew of people and then it'll start buzzing outside of their crew and then it just snowballs into this big thing. But then it's still cool when people outside of those communities learn about it, you know, because the hype cycle wasn't manufactured, you know, like I think like I think a lot of millennial stuff, the coolness expired really fast because a lot of that coolness was manufactured by PR teams. And there was actually like a lot of money behind a lot of things we thought were obscure. Yeah. So I'm rewatching the OC right now, and <laughs> which is delightful and horrifying in a lot of different intersecting ways. But, you know, that show was really involved in like the production of ostensible cool, especially when it came to fashion and to music. And I just watched an episode where they have 
like a <laughs> slightly low energy indie band that's performing. <laughs> and like, as soon as that band gets onto the OC, like they caught the eye of the music supervisor who then worked with their PR agent to be like, well, why don't we have this band appear on the show and be like mm-hmm. perceived as obscure, right? Yeah. Like because Seth likes the band, they are obscure and thus cool, but they are not obscure in the larger scenario because there's this larger PR apparatus that's working around it to make it into something that's actually popular. It's such an interesting transformation, though. I actually got a lot of my music taste from the OC and One Tree Hill soundtracks. Yeah. I remember the first time I heard A Lack of Color by Death Cab for Cutie. (laughs) It was from one of the OC soundtracks. And it was weird because obviously that band is so popular and were probably extremely popular at the time as well. But it felt like my little thing because I didn't get to talk about it with anyone at school. Yeah. And then suddenly it wasn't because it really like Death Cab for Cutie is huge. And I think like my awareness of like other people's tastes online kind of made me want to distance myself from things that I liked that I genuinely liked. Because too many people like them as well. (laughs) And so you're saying that that process doesn't happen as much with Gen Z. That they're like, oh, it's okay that other people like that band. I don't think so. I also think like for every Gen Z kid that has such like interesting taste, I think a lot of them actually like a lot of the same things that are like super heavily marketed. And now... Because, like, there's hardly any distance between indie and, like, pop music. Yeah, yeah. People like extremely popular things, but those popular things are packaged as indie. Mm -hmm. But, like, not even in the same way as before, because this is, like, hyper-corporatized. I'm talking about, like, Frank Ocean, Tame Impala. Like, these are huge, huge acts. And, like, they represent cool, but, like, everybody likes them. I don't know. It's the, it's about the vibe way more than anything else because like Tame Impala lyrics are nonsensical. <laughs> it's totally the vibe, right? And the vibe, like it's, yeah. it's so hard to describe. Like for someone who doesn't know about Tame Impala, like what is the vibe, right? And you're like, oh, if you know, you know, right? It's an exclusionary means, which I think a lot of the conversation around cool broadly tends to be. Okay, we're going to take one more short break. But when we come back, it's one thing to talk about what things we think are cool and how those things are like ratified as being cool. It's another thing to ask how a person might be cool. Do you feel like you yourself are cool? That's what I'll ask Safi after the break. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God, but I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. 
It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. I think like a great question to end this that I don't think you're going to like, but I, I'm still going to ask you to answer it is that I think that people who know your writing and, and know your persona, like think of you as like a very cool person on the internet. Do you think of yourself as cool? No. <laughs> <laughs> do you, I don't. Do you think anyone who people perceive as cool actually thinks of themselves as cool? Uh, yeah, I think some people, that's not me though. Why do you think so? I'm just a nerd. I'll always just sort of identify as like whoever I was on the playground when I was like nine. Totally. Like I just, Same. that's exactly who I am to my core. I'm the chubby, nerdy girl who would read books at recess, you know, like that's my identity and it's, it's pretty fixed. That's how I feel too. Like I am always the person who just wanted to go home and like read Star Trek The Next Generation books. And was very ashamed of that because it wasn't cool. But like, there was a point at some point in my life when I was like, oh, sometimes like leaning into yourself, that's satisfying. And I don't care what's cool. And that's maybe the best part about getting older. Absolutely. I I like, I agree with that so much. (laughs) Um, I really feel like the most insecure people get to decide what's cool, actually. And they can come off like they're really confident. But in my experience, they're not that confident. So I have a hard time kind of divorcing insecurity from coolness or even like narcissism from coolness. I think coolness has a lot to do with feeling like special. And oftentimes the people who feel that way about themselves or are like able to sustain that feeling well into adulthood are the people who get to confer certain things with a sense of coolness. Um, but it's interesting because I think that there is this liberation in saying, oh, I'm old enough that I don't care about cool anymore. But then there's all of these other ways that we move over to try to show prestige or to show class. So even if we don't call it cool, it's still like an indelible part of our personalities, especially I think for anyone who feels any sort of compunction to perform their personality for the public. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a question. Y- yeah, yeah. Are there any things that you really liked as a kid, maybe it's Star Trek, The Next Generation or something else, that you actually don't view as fondly anymore? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, Because I think some of those things that we kind of, we block them out. Do you know what I mean? I think sometimes we're like, oh, well, that isn't something that I ever loved. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Revisionism. I, I have a complicated relationship with like, American Girl dolls because I was obsessed with them. But they're also like 
just so deeply bourgeois. Like the price point and the consumption that was wrapped around them was just so exhaustingly middle class. And also now a lot of the conversations about them is like, okay, so what was going on with the way that these dolls represented history and Mm -hmm. also about who was able to consume them, like how their price point closed off other people and how long it took to have like any dolls that weren't white girls. And for me now, I'm like not into American Girl dolls, but I'm into the American Girl Doll podcast, which is like a historical <laughs> reckoning and 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 revisiting of the dolls. So that's the sort of thing that I think about from my youth. I never owned the dolls. I don't know why I didn't own the dolls. Maybe they were expensive or something, but my parents bought me all the books. Yeah. You know how like each girl had her own book or whatever. Meet Samantha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I had all of those books and I thought those books were so boring. <laughs> Like, I don't know how you formed an obsession with anything like well, that. Well, this is like, the thing is I think it was actually, <laughs> I think I thought the books were super boring. What okay. I thought was interesting was the consumerist pursuit. Like, I want to own all of the things. And that completest thing that, like, is inculcated in us that, like, it's not about the item. It's about owning all of the components of the item and that completionism. Ugh. Um, yeah, that's real. I collected dolls. So I definitely feel like if my parents had just gotten me those dolls, yeah. I would have been obsessed with the dolls, like the actual dolls. Yeah, you'd be like, give me all of them. <laughs> all ten. Yeah. For me, it's probably Harry Potter. Ah. That entire fandom sucked up so many of my good years. Like, yeah, just pure obsession. The only thing in my life I've ever been just as obsessed with um, Mary-Kate and Ashley. I was like obsessed with them since I was like six years old all the way until I was 13. Like just had to get like the books based on the shows and like products at Walmart, the dolls they came out with when I was in sixth grade. I had to watch the shows, go on MaryKateAndAshley.com every day. And like, I feel like I remember that more fondly because I really like them as people. Yeah, me too. Spinsters, man, living in their spinster mansion. Yeah. (laughs) I think they're so cool and they've just done so many amazing things and they seem to really know themselves. With Harry Potter, like now as an adult, when I look back on it, like, like, let's just put it this way. If I didn't know who Mary-Kate and Ashley were, like, I could see myself really liking them as an adult. Yeah. But like, I would never pick up Harry Potter books today. I mean, I think that's really interesting, right? Like we look back and we're like, this thing that we thought of as really cool or as popular or as part of our identities, sometimes it's really lovely to be like, oh, that was really great that that fueled a part of who I was. And sometimes it feels like that thing and the obsession with it or the consumerism associated with it colonized our lives. It's interesting to look back on on those things that made up big parts of our lives. I agree. Well, Safi, thank you so much for talking to me today. We covered a lot of ground and went into a lot of weird places, but um, (laughs) I thought that this was pretty cool. Thank you, Anne. It was so nice talking to you. Fox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of Audio at Vox. If you like the show, let us know. 
room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at boxconversations at box.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back on Monday for a brand new episode. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.